Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Yuri and Timmer, joins us in the program once again as he shares his insights on the global markets and explains how he sees market action playing out in 2023. As we wait for November's CPI print and the Fed's rate announcement later this week, how hawkish will the Fed continue to be? How does wage pressure and high inflation play out in the weeks and months ahead? Urian explains to host Pamela Ritchie, if numbers keep on track as it was a month ago where numbers came in below expectations, it will give more solace to the markets that the Fed is indeed winning the battle against inflation. If it comes above estimates, we may not go above where we said we've gone, which is around 5%, but we may have to hang out in that region a little longer. Yurian says China is the big story right now because it looks like the country will finally reopen, and they certainly have the room to ease policy to make that reopening possible. Yurian adds, regardless of the region or part of the world we look at, we must always be aware of the value trap. Just because something is cheap doesn't mean it's going to outperform in the long term. Stay tuned for this and more. As per usual, Yurian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on December 12, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. May I begin, actually, just just asking you, how much can change between a CPI print and a Fed decision? I mean, you know, isn't it already written? Um, I think there's room for some some impact here. The CPI will be important in that there has been momentum behind the, the CPI dropping, you know, in the last few months on a rate of change basis. Obviously, inflation is still rising, uh, but the rate of change is coming down. It was it peaked at nine percent in June, and it's around seven or ish or so now. And so, if it continues on the track that it was on a month ago, where the numbers came in below expectations, it, it will give more solace to the markets that the Fed is indeed winning the battle against inflation. So I, I think the CPI is an important one. If, if, if the estimates, if they come in, if it comes in above estimates, um, then I think it will create maybe an expectation that the Fed is correct in what, you know, Jay Powell recently has been saying that, look, don't, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. We may not go above where we've said we've gone, which is around 5%, just under 5%, but we may have to hang out there longer. And I think that is probably the most important thing right now. If you, we could pull up slide three, I, I, can, I can illustrate that. And that chart, U.S. monetary policy, was tweeted on December 12th. And of course, that, that brings us to the FOMC meeting this week as well. Um, you know, the important thing there will be the update to the dot plot, so the what we call the terminal dots, which is uh, what the Fed thinks a neutral policy is, 
those will likely come up. They're at around two and a half now, which I think is too low, given where our star is. You can see that in the smooth blue line. That, that's what we call the natural rate of interest, which is a real rate, uh, a theoretical rate, not an actual market rate, but a theoretical rate. And so uh, you can see that that's been rising. And so my, my guess is that what the Fed thinks a, a neutral policy is, is going to be going up towards maybe 3%. Uh, but the more important part, I think, is you can see how that curve, that dotted line, uh, has that kink in it. And basically, the market is expecting the Fed to go to the restrictive zone for like a New York minute and then go immediately back to neutral at 3%. And to me, that seems wishful thinking, like either... Either the economy stays strong and inflation maybe remains, you know, sticky, and then the Fed has to hang out kind of in the restrictive zone longer, or the economy goes into a recession, which is not unlikely given what the yield curve is doing, uh, and then the Fed has to, you know, respond by cutting rates, but at that point, the whole earnings picture becomes at risk. So it seems to me like, you know, if we look at the discounted cash flow model, right, earnings over interest rates, right now the stock market has a fairly optimistic reading on the numerator of that formula as well as the denominator. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a pretty uh, uh, finite uh, needle uh, to, to, to thread. And so the FOMC this week, I th uh, this week will, will shed more light on uh, Jay Powell basically saying, you know, maybe rubbing it in a little bit more to the market that, they're going to have to hang out in the restrictive zone, um, you know, for for longer than the market currently expects. Is is there any scenario in which we don't see a pretty broad reset of earnings estimates, or or is that in your mind um, coming? If we go to slide four. Uh, so yeah, this is the slide he's referring to is earnings peak tweeted by Urian on December twelfth. And this is always the, this is a tricky thing when. Inflation is is high as it is currently. I mean, even still, even after the CPI has started to to moderate, we're still looking at seven percent inflation, and maybe closer to seven and a half when this whole year is wrapped up. And so, the the tricky part when you have high inflation is that when you look at earnings, you need to look at how much of the earnings growth that we get is inflation, and how much of it is real earnings, right? So maybe last year. If, if, if earnings, let's say if earnings growth is 10% uh, and, and last year it was 7% real, 3% inflation, and this year it's 3% uh, real and 7% inflation, you know, that's a different uh, um, mix. And it's sometimes hard to see through that, but the market, I think, sees through that because when it's mostly inflation, investors just don't pay for those earnings the same way they would when it's real growth. So the PE, even if the EPS doesn't come down because it's being inflated, for the lack of a better term, the PE will reflect that and will come down. But this chart um, is a new chart where I show uh, cyclical peaks in the earnings per share for the S&P. So that's the level, not the rate of change. And you can see that kind of bright colored blue line those are the consensus estimates for 2023. Um, and, you know, it's certainly, I mean, it'd be nice if it, if it happened that way, but it's inconsistent with most cyclical peaks. And it's inconsistent with, if we go to the next slide, uh, it's inconsistent with what we know about the business cycle and about the yield curve. The next slide, yield curve, was tweeted by Urian on December 12th. This chart shows a long history of the yield curve in the top. And the gray bars in the bottom is the New York Fed's 
recession probability model based on the shape of the curve. And the, and the odds of recession are now as high as they were in 2020 when we actually had uh, a, a brief but severe uh, recession with the, the pandemic lockdowns. And they're almost, the probability is almost as high as both the financial crisis and the dot-com bursting. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the likelihood of a recession next year should not be, you know, un underestimated or discounted. And if we get a recession, then very likely earnings will come down, at least in real terms. Um, and if it's just inflation holding them up, investors will see through that and they will just bid down for those stocks by lowering the, the PE multiple. So, so just for a moment, can we just sort of take a look at the global, because you do have central banks all over the world about to make decisions. Um, and the, as we well know, the Fed has moved fastest. Actually, the Bank of Canada might have moved fastest, but in any case, um, has moved very quickly in comparison to most. And it looks like other parts of the world are, are either in recessions or, or looking at steeper ones, and their central banks are going to hike into them, it looks like. I mean, what, what do you think of that when you look at that? It's interesting. Uh, so it is a pretty d dispersed set of, of outcomes. Of course, you know, China is the big story right now because it looks like China is finally going to reopen. And they certainly have the room to ease policy uh, to make that reopening you know, happen. The question, of course, in China is what will be the, 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 the human cost in terms of you know, COVID? Because if they're going to reopen, they're going to have to relax the zero COVID rule. And my understanding, and I'm not a, a, an expert on this, but my understanding is that uh, you know, the, the Chinese population is either not as well vaccinated or the quality of the vaccine is not quite as robust or they don't have as many boosters. And so the population might be more vulnerable to a reopening uh, than, than, than would be ideal, right? And then it's a question of can hospitals keep up with the, the patients and all that stuff. So it's by no means a slam dunk that China is going to fully reopen overnight uh, and, and we're going to be back, back in business. Uh, but you know, there is that potential that um, you're, you're going to get a nice tailwind from China and therefore emerging markets. And then, of course, you have Japan, which is still doubling down on yield curve control, even though inflation there is actually rising as well, more modestly than it is over here. So Japan is still easing. Uh, Europe is tightening. Uh, and Europe, by I think, generally is considered to be in a mild recession, although I've been there now twice in the last three or four months, and I don't see any evidence of it. But you know, recessions can be a little bit uh, misleading uh, because you could have an economy that has been running at full capacity that is now slightly shrinking, but let, let's say by 1% or so, and you're not really going to notice. It's not like the streets are all of a sudden going to be empty. It's just running at a slightly less robust pace. So uh, so the, the, the whole recession definition is, is a little bit quirky in that sense. But, you know, one of the things we've seen is that the dollar has come, uh, you know, down substantially. Um, and, um, and that actually is affecting relative earnings growth. It's really interesting to see this. You know, when we think about non-U.S. equities or international equities, uh, those are always expressed in dollars, right? Because you're you're dealing with different countries and you have to normalize those numbers somehow. 
And so the dollar coming down will will have an impact on earnings estimates, even though it may not have anything to do with the actual companies themselves. And so, you know, we know that relative earnings are what drives relative performance, right? So a lot of people will look at relative valuation, you know, EM is at 11, Europe is at 11 times earnings, and the U.S. is at 18. Therefore, I should buy Europe or, or EM. Uh, that's true. But we always have to be aware of the value trap, right? Just because something is cheap doesn't mean it's going to outperform. Maybe over the long term it does. So for international or global asset allocation, it's relative earnings that drives relative performance. And so maybe we're finally at a at an inflection point where, you know, the big growers in the U.S. have have it looks like they've clearly peaked for not only the cycle, but for the longer term cycle. And when that group peaks on a relative basis, uh, everything else, you know, starts to outperform. So value small caps as well as international. So maybe we're on, on the cusp of a, of a major cyclical inflection point uh, as well as a secular one. And maybe that will be a story for 2023 and beyond. That's fascinating. And, and I think in your, um, investment note. You you do sort of talk about the the possibilities of, in fact, a melt up um, sort of in response to and, you know, put that in context for a sort of the, the likelihood, which I think you were pointing out there. So slide 10. So uh, so in terms of the melt up scenario, um, uh, you know, we, we look at uh, we know, obviously, that the Fed and other central banks, the Bank of Canada, Bank of England, ECB, et cetera, have all been tightening aggressively this year. Urian is referring to this slide after the last tightening tweeted on December 12th. One of the questions, of course, is how much further will they go? How far into the restrictive zone do they go? And that that was the first chart that we showed. And the answer is Mark is expecting the Fed and others to go well into the restrictive zone, but not stay there for very long. And so right. I mean, that's consensus. Yes, that is consensus. And so the, the risk is that the Fed will throw some cold water on that this week, saying, you know, they're not going to necessarily move the goalpost, saying we're going to go to six instead of five, but they're just going to go to five and stay there, you know, or go. And, and that, I think, is the risk because the market, uh, the stock market is pricing itself not on what we call the terminal rate, that 5% rate, but on where the Fed eventually is going to land after that, which would be the neutral rate, right? Eventually, the Fed will go back to neutral. We just don't know when and 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 how linear that path will be. So if the Fed's going to stay in the restrictive zone for a while, that will have an impact on, on valuation. But but to your question about a melt-up, certainly a lot of people are, are wondering, um, knowing that the market seems to be such a, a liquidity junkie these days, that as soon as the Fed kind of starts to ease up on policy, uh, the stock market will have a melt up. And, and so I kind of tested that. So in this chart, which has a lot of wiggly lines, I apologize, but the gray lines show what happens after the last tightening move of the Fed. So when the Fed has tightened for the last time, and of course, we don't know yet when that will be, but presumably based on the forward curve, that will be in the spring of next year at around 5%. Um, and, and the chart shows what happens after. So the orange lines in the top is what happens to the bond yield, which in most cases goes down. Uh, and, and that makes sense, right? Because basically when the Fed stops tightening, usually uh, it's because the economy is then weakening and then the Fed eventually uh, you know, the, the notion of a soft landing where the Fed stops tightening because it has 
slayed the inflation dragon without causing a recession. I mean, that obviously is the the the, the desired outcome, but history shows us that that rarely happens. You know, Greenspan in 94 was really the only time other than 1966 where that happened. So in most cases, the economy is slowing or even going into a contraction. And that's why the Fed stops and then eventually starts easing. And you can see all those gray lines eventually obviously go down. And if you then look at the bottom panel, the purple line is what happens to the S&P 500 from the point of the last tightening on. And it's by far a uniform you know, conclusion, right? I mean, in about 10 out of the 16 cases, the market goes down and then recovers. Sometimes it goes down a little, sometimes it goes down a lot. But in other cases, in maybe five, six times uh, out of the 16, uh, the markets will uh, you know, go up right away. And, and that usually will be the case because they've already come down a lot during the tightening cycle, as has happened this year, right? Market went down 28% to its low point in October. So it's entirely possible that if the Fed stops tightening and we don't get a recession, that the markets will indeed have a melt up because it'll be that relief of rates coming down without earnings getting uh, getting clobbered. But again, that a lot needs to go right in that scenario. And um, and the market, you know, it doesn't seem to be priced for that that possibility. There seems to be um, it's it's a, a nice discussion, not a nice discussion, but it's a, a better than bad discussion around, um, you know, a mild recession and that that sort of discussion. I mean, based on the experiment that you and everyone else in the market has watched, um, easing cuts may happen at some point, uh, and that's what we're talking about. Quantitative easing, though, I mean, is that experiment over for? the foreseeable future in your opinion? Um, it's over for now. When we can pull up slide two, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because the Fed. And that slide, U.S. rates, was tweeted by Urian on December 13th. You know, went from QE to QT, quantitative tightening. And in March, it stopped expanding the balance sheet and then started running it off, not by not because it's selling securities, but it's just not replacing securities that are maturing. And and the and the the target is to let the balance sheet run off by ninety five billion a month, which is a lot. You know, the QE was one hundred and twenty billion of purchases per month. So they've gone from plus one twenty to minus ninety five. But what's happening is that, and this gets really kind of inside baseball, and I apologize, but there are other factors affecting the balance sheet of the Fed that are not really uh, intentional. And one is uh, the Treasury general account, which is the Treasury's uh, account at the Fed. And remember last year when, uh, the, when the White House did the stimulus plan in March of last year, it was $1.9 trillion, I think. That was basically paid for not by issuing debt, but by running down the Treasury's cash balance at the Fed. Uh, so that cash balance is a form of liquidity if, if it starts to, to increase. Um, and the other one are reverse repos, right? Investors don't have enough collateral, so they are they are taking collateral from the Fed. And so when you subtract uh, the TGA and reverse repos from the Fed's balance sheet, you get the, the orange line there. And that has been contracting, as you can see, right? So QE ended right near the peak in the market and and, and is now in uh, contraction mode. But you can see whenever the balance sheet starts to wiggle in different directions, the market seems to follow. And it's just uh, it's just an illustration of how dependent um, 
the market is on the liquidity environment, and it seems to be more so than on the earnings environment. So again, the, wor the worst kind of scenario for the stock market is that the Fed remains very restrictive, driving that balance sheet down, while at the same time, earnings become under pressure, because then again, going back to the DCF model, you got both the numerator and the denominator uh, working against you. And right now the market seems to be betting on both of them working in their favor. And, and so I, I do think that that creates an environment for 2023 where uh, I, I don't think necessarily the bear market will continue and, and by making new lows. Uh, I can easily show math that that would suggest that the market's bottom in October was the bottom. But at the same time, what I just laid out uh, does not really create a catalyst for a new, a new bull market. So I think 2023 is going to be a year where investors are going to have to be a little bit more patient and that the market's going to chop around. And if we do get downside risk on the stock market, I think the 40 side of the 60-40 will, okay. will help us out. So I, I do think it'll be better than, than this year, uh, but it's, uh, but I think it's too early to, to kind of call for the next cyclical bull market. Okay, fascinating. And actually, that was one of the questions that I was just going to ask you that's coming in. Um, and so there's also a question, actually, same person and same investor asking on the 60-40 and the role there. And maybe we can go into that more, but also asking about the place of GICs, which is, you don't, I mean, I think the equivalent in the US is the certificate yeah. of deposits, but um, just sort of the case for taking a look at, you know, yeah. fixed income versus that form of investment. Yes, it's a good question. And I know that GICs, which are guaranteed investment contracts that a bank or an insurance company will sell to you as in terms of delivering a fixed uh, cash flow, uh, that those are very popular. They're very competitive. You, I think you can get four plus percent on them, if I'm not mistaken. Um, um, and, and certainly it's easy to see why investors would be you know, looking at that. But it's worth remembering that you know, you're getting that fixed cash flow, which of course is a nice thing to have in a year like this. But if, but the comparison would be to investing in bonds, and right. So, and so, if you're on the bond side, with yields still relatively high, we're at 3.6 percent on the U.S. 10 years, not as good as it was a month ago when it was about 4.3. But that's still a a real rate that is, you know, comfortably positive. And so if we do get a recession next year or the year after, what have you, um, and, it, and it knocks the 60 down, um, I think the 40 would have much more upside than a GIC, right? The GIC, you're just getting that cash flow. But if you buy a bond at three and a half or four percent and it and the yield goes to three or two and a half, you're going to get the yield plus the capital appreciation. So I, I can see the role of a GIC, uh, but the, the risk is that you're going to leave uh, capital appreciation on the table if you do get an, an environment where where there's an economic contraction. Another thing I want to ask you um, is sort of the component, and you've spoken about this before, but it, when you're talking about when we're looking at growth, what needs to maybe come out of earnings estimates in terms of which part is inflation, which part is growth, Financial engineering also has sort of a similar role in the valuation story. How how do you I mean how do you talk about everything yeah. from buybacks to dividends? Is there anything new there, or are we just going to carry on the way it's been? Um, there's nothing really new, but it, it is um, financial engineering has been such a big driver of the secular trend. 
Um, and I think it's generally not not appreciated as much, I think, as it should be. And so we can go, maybe I review a couple of slides here. Let, let's start with slide uh, 14. And that slide, DCF payout ratio, was tweeted by Urian on December 14th. So financial engineering basically means uh, companies are executing debt for equity arbitrages, right? So they use very low rates and very uh, low credit spreads as an opportunity to issue debt. And then they use that debt uh, to uh, essentially return shareholder value to equity holders, uh, either through buybacks or mergers and acquisitions. And, and um, that has been a very big force since the mid 2000s. Um, this chart shows what we call the payout ratio, which are the gray bars, and that is the percentage of earnings that are returned, quote unquote, to shareholders via dividends and buybacks. And that number has been pretty high at around 75% for the last you know, 10 or 20 years. Uh, it's generally much higher than it is for other countries or regions uh, where there is less of a buyback culture among corporations. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. kind of earns a premium or has earned a premium in terms of valuation. If we go to slide 19, is that when you think about which companies are the ones doing doing the buybacks, it's generally the large cap growth companies, right? The next slide, top 50 versus bottom 450, was tweeted by Urian on December 15th. I mean, that's not entirely true. I mean, banks do them, energy companies do them. But basically, you think about the mega growers, the big growers, they're the ones generating the cash flow, and they're the ones having too much of it at the end of the day and returning it, some of it, to shareholders. And this is a chart of the relative performance of what I call the Nifty 50, so the 50 largest companies in the S&P relative to the next 450. And to me, it looks like a change in secular leadership. You know, we've only had a few periods where they have outperformed to such a degree. One was the early 70s, which was the original Nifty 50 period. And the other one was, of course, the late 90s. And so if we do have a regime shift away from the big growers to basically everything else, value, small, non-U.S., maybe you get less of an emphasis on buybacks, less financial engineering, and therefore a lower P.E. ratio. So it all kind of brings me back to is the secular trend still ongoing? And I'm starting to have my doubts. And, and by that, I don't mean that we're going to be in a secular bear market or anything like that. I don't expect that. But I, I don't think we're going to be able to sustain once we get out of this next out of this bear market. We're not going to be able to sustain this ever ever um, series of higher highs to ever higher P.E.s. I think the slope of the overall advance for the market uh, will start to come down, still be positive, but not in the in the high double digits like we've seen over the past uh, decade or so. Fascinating. It's such an important part to put into the overall valuation story. We just have a sort of a second or two here. Just just your thoughts on we have a bit of a merger Monday going on and um, the Amgen and, we, you know, we've just sort of seen lots of activity on that front. Is this just end of year getting getting everything done or, or is there anything to do with you know, a turn that that uh, is interesting to you? I, I don't know if it's end of year stuff, but it's always good to see, uh, like in a, in a reduced valuation environment, of course, the PE has come way down from where it was at the beginning of the year. Uh, so it is good to see that companies think they're, uh, you know, see value in other companies because that means that valuations must be reasonably attractive. And especially in a period where liquidity conditions have been relatively tight, 
um, it's nice to see that 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 is still happening. And you know, to the chart that I showed earlier with that supply and demand with all these buybacks and M&A, uh, you know, ongoing M&A would be a sign that that trend um, is still continuing. And you know, it's it's an important one and uh, one that we want to want want to be respectful of for sure. Any any final thoughts? It's great to get your okay. thoughts, and we're going to speak to you again. But it's just wrapping yeah. up a couple of final no, ones for the year. I, I just wanted to put a little math on uh, because I I see a lot of this uh, out kind of in in on in the Twitter sphere, is that you know earnings I think have downside risk for next year. Uh, currently, earnings per share are two hundred and twenty dollars. They're expected to go to 230. I think that's wishful thinking. I think more likely would be a decline to 200 or so, which will be a 10% decline. And people will immediately say, well, okay, but if the market's worth only 15 times expected earnings, and those expected earnings are going to be 200, then 15 times 200 is 3,000 on the S&P, which is 1,000 points below where we are now. And, and I'm always quick to point out that that's not how the math works, even though it would seem like that's how it would work, because what we know is that price almost always bottoms several quarters ahead of earnings, right? And by the time that earnings bottom, the price and therefore the PE are usually up 20 to 30% off the lows already. So if the fair value is 15, but we're two quarters past an earnings bottom, by then the Fed will be cutting rates probably pretty substantially, and that fair value might be up to 17 or 18. So it's 17 or 18 times 200, not 15 times. And 17 or 18 times 200 is about 3,500, which is exactly where we were in October. And so that's what, how I come up with the, the idea that we, even if we have an earnings contraction next year and a recession, doesn't mean the market has to go to a lower low. It can just revisit the old low and be in this choppy trading range while we wait for stuff to improve. So I, I think that's an important nuance to, to, um, to understand. It's wonderful. So good to see you. Yuri and Timur, thank you very, very much for joining us. Great. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.